It's great to see you. My name is Sean Hurley. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Coastline Covenant Church. And uh, really honored, really privileged to be able to preach from the pulpit today. Grateful to Pastor Peter for opening this up to us. Uh, I lead Coastline with Garrick Hanger, who you've probably seen around. He's the more social of the two of us. He's probably <laughs> greeted you and said hello. But uh, just from on behalf of Coastline to St. Andrews, we are so grateful uh, for how kind and welcoming you've been to us. You know, we're tenants, which means that we meet here Sunday evenings, but tenants doesn't quite uh, encapsulate the fullness of the relationship. We have done a service together on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, we did Holy Week together with Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, Easter sunrise service in the park, and now VBS. Uh, one of the things that we talk about at Coastline is we desire to live as God's beloved family. And we can truly tell you, uh, St. Andrews, is that you are beginning to feel like family to us. We're so grateful for getting to do ministry with you this week, getting to know your children and serve alongside of you. So from us to you, thank you. We're really honored to be here with you in this room this morning. And how great does it feel to say, everybody scoot towards the middle, we need more seats. And that feels great. So there's a few people who we should probably thank for their help in pulling off VBS. Uh, the first one is Rose Dunn over here. Rose, would you stand up? And Do Donna Blythe, Donna, are you here? She's teaching class, of course she is. And Rochelle, uh, our children's director, and Nikki Hernandez. I know that all of you carried the vision and the pressure and the problem solving of the week and pulling it all together, so thank you for carrying that. I know that it comes with a heavyweight. We deeply appreciate you. And we also had 70 volunteers who helped pull the whole thing off. If you're a volunteer, could you stand up? Yeah. Thank you, all of you. I know that you're tired and run down. You've lost your voices. But we so appreciate everything that you did. And finally, Sue McKenzie, who was kind of the upfront. Thank you sincerely. So Remy read the verse for us that was kind of the, the guiding passage for all of EBS this week. And it's Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you don't go to church very often, if this is, isn't something typical for you, when you hear a passage like that, there's a lot in it that God's showing his love for us while we were at our worst. And in that passage, there is just a mountain of majesty and beauty and questions that can and should be asked. But if you've grown up in the church or been here for a long time, you've heard this passage a lot. And some of the wonder can quickly go out of it, and it can become so familiar that you read it quickly and move past it, and you're no longer stirred, and you're no longer kind of moved by the power that is in that passage. And what I'm concerned about most in my life and for the life of most people who have been Christians for a long time is the danger about losing the wonder of the Scriptures, that they can become so familiar, and out of that familiarity becomes some sort of kind of lackadaisical attitude towards God or towards the Scripture, so you no longer engage with them with your whole heart. This was always the problem for Israel, and I think it remains a problem for us today, that familiarity kills wonder, and is fundamentally dangerous to us in our faith and in our life. Uh, when I first got my driver's license, uh, I was a very poor driver, you might say. I had three accidents in the first three years. One time I hit a pole in a park. 
Another time, I rear-ended somebody on Rolling Hills Road, but the third time was the scariest and the one that almost had the most consequences because I hit a motorcycle. I know, right? Like, and I was a youth pastor. People let me actually like, drive their kids all over town for a while. What had happened is that I was pulling out of my driveway at the exact same time that he was pulling out of his driveway. And part of the, thing, the issue, I think, is that we were so close to home. We were within range of our house. We weren't on the 405. We weren't on the 110. We weren't going 70 miles an hour. Two people leaving their house, not really thinking, plugging in their kind of seatbelts, adjusting the radio, and we hit each other head on. It's the familiarity of the situation that made it so dangerous in that moment. If I hadn't been so familiar, if I hadn't been so close to home, chances are it never would have happened. You know, there's a couple that I used to watch up at a, a coffee shop that I used to work at. They were both well into their late stages of life, 70s and 80s, clearly had been married for a very long time. They would sit together, but I would watch them because they would never, ever talk. They were always there, but never engaged with one another. And I thought the treasure of the memories that they certainly have over time, and yet you could see that the familiarity was bringing sort of a shallowness to their present relationship. And I think of you and I, who can come to the same sort of church and sit in the same sort of seat and engage with the same sort of programs, and slowly the familiarity can kill our wonder, and with that, it slowly kills our faith. And I think that's just the gift of a thing like VBS is we could watch these kids come up here and we can watch them sing, and they engage with the wonder so purely and with such love and with such passion that we cannot help but have our own hearts stirred a little bit. We can't help but be moved and be encouraged by their own faith. The same thing is true not with just those who are young in life, but young in faith. To see someone come to know Christ and to see the wonder that they experience as they hear the gospel and begin to live it is something that encourages all of us. And so I thought today what we would do is explore Romans 5, 8 a little bit to dig into it and to kind of allow the passage, which can be so familiar, to hopefully reinvigorate our hearts through the wonder of our children. And so with that, Romans 5.8. Let me pray for us. Lord, Lord, you have been so good to us, to both of these churches, for the legacy of St. Andrews and for the newness and the freshness of Coastline. And Lord, to be here together, Lord, with these wonderful saints in the faith in this historic building. Um, Lord, we're just encouraged to be here. Lord, we thank you for your word and that you're present. That, Lord, your spirit here is moving. And that, Lord, when we come together like this, a part of you truly delights in it. And so, Lord, be with us today. Teach us from your word. Give us humble hearts. Lord, would you take off all of the familiarity and strike us again with the beauty of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If we're going to get the most out of Romans 5.8, I want to go backwards a little bit into the book of Romans so you can understand a little bit of what's happening and why Romans 5.8 truly hits us like a foghorn when we get there. Romans 1 has this fascinating beginning because it says this, that it was written, first of all, to uh, a church that was full of Gentiles and Jews. Okay, So now that's not a sort of surprising thing. Most of the first century churches were filled with Romans and with Jews. But every church that had Gentiles and Jews coming together was struggling in some sort of way. We find that especially in the book of Galatians and a few other ones, that there's this challenge of learning to be these two different cultures now joined together by Christ, given all the past pain, the past history, the past politics, 
the past disappointments that they've had with one another. And we know that's true in the Roman church as well, that they're trying to figure out how they can be a family even though they are so profoundly different. And so when Romans 1 begins, it's surprising because he begins by speaking directly to the Gentiles, the Romans, and he says this, that the Gentiles deserve God's wrath. That's a heck of a way to start a letter to a mixed congregation, is to highlight one of them and say, you deserve God's wrath. Now, part of that is because Rome was an incredibly violent, incredibly decadent, and incredibly sexually explicit culture. A lot of historians believe that the fall of Rome goes back to a sort of moral corrosion that happened at their base that caused them to live only for themselves, creating kind of like a moral rot that collapses it all from the inside. In a sense, Paul's accusation to the Roman church, to the Gentiles, is this, is that although there is clear evidence that there is a God, the Roman people live as if it is them. That they are the ones who are the gods of the universe and they should lead their lives. The key verse, I think, in Romans 1 comes out of Romans 1.32. He says that although they know God's righteous decree, the Romans, the Gentiles, although they know God's righteous decree because the morals of God are clearly known to every heart, although they know it, they, although they know that those who do such things deserve death, means sin, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Now, you can imagine when the Jewish side of the congregation hear this kind of preached, part of them is quietly nodding. Those Gentiles really are as bad as people say. And finally, Paul is addressing it. Finally, Paul is calling out their sin. But in Romans 2, Paul makes a move that nobody sees coming because he says that the Jews also deserve God's wrath. That they've been given the law the prophets, they have all the history. They have seen God descend on Mount Sinai. They know exactly who God is, and yet they have walked away from him time and time again. They have created idols for themselves and have even sacrificed their own children. They know more than the Roman church, and yet they have, in a sense, done worse, even though they have had more light. The key verse out of Romans 2 is Romans 2.24 as it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. What he says there is, Jews, the Gentiles are as bad as they are because you are as bad as you are. You have actually led them further astray due to how hard you have pursued sin. Now, this leaves everybody in a loss because he's saying the Gentiles deserve God's wrath and so do the Jews. It would be like saying, middle America deserves God's wrath, and so does California. That St. Andrews deserves God's wrath, and so does Coastline. There's nobody that is left in his proclamation that does not deserve God's wrath. He leaves them in Romans 2 with no sort of hope about where to go. Everybody deserves God's wrath until Romans 3. And in Romans 3, he brings the good news out in a powerful way. This is Romans 3.22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference now between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. No longer is righteousness determined by your ethnicity or by your obedience to the law. 
And no longer are we expected to be righteous by our own actions or by our own obedience. Now there's a new way to be righteous, and it is done by Jesus Christ. And by believing in him, we can all be righteous, and we can all escape wrath. This is the powerful message out of Romans 3, and that's where we get to Romans 5. It says this, that God now demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the Romans and the Gentiles were in the middle of their violence, when the Colosseum was full of blood, when they were in the middle of their debauchery, when they were in the middle of overcoming the nations and putting them to the sword and ruling them cruelly, it was in that moment that Christ died for them. And when the Jews were in the midst of their rebellion, as the golden calf is being created, as they are walking away from God in every conceivable way, it's in that moment that God loved them. That God has shown his love for us in this. Now this is God's one-sided love for sinners. And Romans 5.8 says that this one-sided love for sinners is a demonstration of who God is and it reveals his love for us. And it's shocking to us because really none of us would want to be in a relationship filled with one-way love. None of us would want to be in a relationship in which we were the loving partner and the other one was not loving at all. You know, a few years ago, my son went to his very first dance. Uh, this was in sixth grade. This is my son, Liam. If you're laughing, if you don't know who Liam is, Liam's now 18 and he's six foot four. So this, this is Liam a long time ago. We were so excited for Liam to go. This was a big deal for him. We anxiously watched the clock as the time went by. But when he came back from the dance, he seemed off. And we weren't really sure why it was at the time. But the next morning, my wife got to sit with him and said, how really was the dance? Because we could tell something had happened. And he said, mom, I need you to pray for me. Shirley, what can we do? How can we pray for you? He said, well, I didn't tell you guys this, but I got a girlfriend at the dance. <laughs> okay. Okay, tell us about that. He's like, well, I don't know her, but my friend said she liked me and talked me into it. And now I need, you, need to ask you to get her to, pr to pray that God would make her move on Monday. And so now you're trying to help your son unpack this. Like, you're in this relationship. You're in sixth grade. You don't want to be here. You don't know what to do. And we said, Liam, you only have awkward options in front of you. I'm sorry. There is no easy option in front of you, but you have to break up with her. Because it's just not fair for her to like you and for you to not even know who she is. You have to break up with her. And sure enough, he did. But it kind of gets at that sort of awkwardness, right? Like nobody would ever want to be in a relationship where you love and you're not loved back. And it, we take it from this sort of silly illustration of my son in sixth grade to the very real applications of our everyday lives. Because every family has been touched by divorce. And every divorce has an element of a loss of love on one part of the party and how tragic and utterly gut-wrenching it is when that happens to you or where you're suddenly in that relationship and you're left with a sort of wound that, you know, it takes years to heal, if ever, if ever. We would never want to be in a relationship of one-way kind of love, but God chooses to love us 
even though we are oftentimes at our worst, and even though on our best day of loving him, our love will be incomplete and be a little bit shallow compared to his. And yet God fully knows this. He knows who we are, and he chooses to love us still. And in fact, what it says God does is that he gives us his spirit, and his spirit actually stirs in our hearts to love him back. That there's nothing inside of us that naturally chooses to love him unless he doesn't act inside of us. We will not love him unless he acts in us first. And so not only does he love us when we are unlovable, not only does he love us when we can't love him back, but then he actually initiates the action to help us love him back. This is central to what Romans 5.8 is trying to get at, that God loved us first. He loved you before you were lovable. He accepted you before you were acceptable. He approved you before you were commendable. He made you righteous before you had ever done rightly. God loved you first. Now, you may not be the sort of person that you want to be right now, and very few of us are. You may look at your own life and your own goals and your own character, and you may see miles to go. You might have more failures in your life than you have achievements. You might not be wealthy, or powerful, you might not even be spiritual. You might not even be happy right now. But nonetheless, God has accepted you and loved you before any of those things has changed. This kind of one-way transformative love of God, this is the biblical definition of grace, that he loved us before we were ever lovable or ever loved him back. If we preach grace well, if we read grace well, it should feel scandalous to us. We should wonder if we've gone too far. When we preach grace that God loved you, but when we were lost in sin, when we imagine people who are the furthest from God in our minds, and when we think about God loving them before they've ever made any sort of movement to him, our hands should want to shoot up and say, but what about repentance? But what about faith? And those things are absolutely true on our pathway to salvation. But Romans 5.8 says, before either of those things happen, before there's ever repentance and before there is faith, there is still love from God. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. It should make us uncomfortable with how powerful it is. And if we don't feel uncomfortable, then we have not gone far enough in our understanding of grace. Thomas Merton said it this way, a saint is not someone who is good, but is someone who has experienced the goodness of God. Let me say that one more time. A saint is not someone who is good, but it is someone who has experienced the goodness of God. And if that's true, if God is the initiator of salvation, why then does so much of our faith focus on my activity instead of his? You know, I'm old enough in ministry now to have a lot of regrets. Well, I should say this, a few regrets. <laughs> Praise God that I don't have a lot. But there are sermons that I gave 5, 10, 20 years ago that I would never give now. There's passages that I understood one way 5, 10, 20 years ago that I think differently about now. And there's one sermon that I preached to myself that I look at now and I see a tint of heresy in it, and it was this. I told everybody who would listen that when I died and went to heaven, that I wanted to stand before God under the full confidence that I got every bit of talent, effort, and opportunity out of the time and gifts that God gave me. That I didn't want to go to heaven and have a sense that if I had just worked a little bit harder or studied a little bit more or gave a little bit more blood and sweat and tears to the ministry, that there was anything that God wanted to do but was left undone because of me. 
And I have to tell you, I told everybody who would listen that story. And I got to tell you, people loved that message. Because Christians love the message, try harder. And as I preached it, opportunities opened up for me. Ministry opened up for me. I was somebody who was emulated and studied. But when I look at it now, I see that there's an, an element there of trying to earn something that I already had. That there's an element there of me trying to earn something from God or through my own effort and abilities that there's something that I could make happen that he needed me to do that would be unleft, undone unless I did my part. And what I love about Romans 5.8 is it comes back to the fact that before I ever did anything, I received all of the love of God that I'm ever going to receive. Before there was any action on my part, his son died on the cross and rose for me. We're still addicted to earning. And it's because earning is easier than grace. It feels better to flog myself for my failures and to work harder through blood, sweat, and tears than it does to simply accept that God loves me right now as I am. And so oftentimes we're chasing what we already have. I think kind of what happened with the James Webb telescope this week is a great reminder about the majesty of God and the smallness of us. When the pictures came out from the James Webb telescope, and I know that you've all seen them now, suddenly God became bigger than we'd ever been able to imagine him to be before it had ever been revealed. And also, we suddenly felt smaller. I'm sure you've seen kind of the writing on it. This picture of the galaxies, they say this picture is as large as if you took a grain of sand and held it up to the sky. That's the scope and scale of this. What we're seeing there aren't just stars. That's not just suns. That's not just solar systems like ours. What we're seeing there is galaxies like the Milky Way. So when we look at this, we are not just seeing one individual stars, but we're seeing hundreds of thousands of millions, that's the number, hundreds of thousands of millions of stars, planets, and galaxies. It's something that we've never seen before, and it's so huge that it just causes us to take a step back. And if we're honest, as we bring that message into this sermon, it reminds us about just how good our good deeds are and how needed could they possibly be. When God can create all of this, does he really need more effort from me to do anything? <laughs> Don't I overestimate my own power and my own ability? And suddenly aren't I put back into the proper place of awe and of wonder and of worship? Again, familiarity with the stars will kill our faith, but the wonder of what we see reinvigorates us. So how should we, as God's people, love God in all of his bigness the answer out of the scripture today is that we should love his bigness with our own smallness. That we need to become like children, the same sort of children that we saw up here today. I'm going to take us to Mark chapter 10. Again, another familiar passage. This is Mark 10 verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little, little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. It's important for us to know that the ancient world, when Jesus spoke in the first century, was not particularly nostalgic or charmed by children. 
Children were a blessing from God. They desperately desired to have children that they could kind of pass their legacy on. But children were a heavy burden on a family without a lot lot of resources. In this day and time, many children died in the first year of their birth. Many women died in the process of childbearing. Children consumed precious resources before they could help. If you had a son, there was a chance that one day he could work the fields. If you had a daughter, you had to give a dowry for her to eventually be married off and to be cared for by somebody. Discipline was incredibly common in a first century Jewish household, and respect was demanded. That is how they thought of their children. They were a part of the family, but actually the parents were seen as being the center of the family. But today, in the South Bay here in the year 2022, children are in every way the center of a family. We uh, pay to get our children exposure to foreign languages while they were just simply toddlers so they could pick up the language quickly. We get them into the most advanced club sports possible so they could achieve against their, uh, the kids that they're going to compete against. We call teachers and say, my kid's got a 79 in your class. What can we do about that? We do everything we can to help our children have every chance to succeed, and that is good. But if we read this Bible passage through that lens instead of the first century lens, it's going to change how we understand what's happening here. Jesus said that we need to receive the kingdom as little children. That means with smallness. We have to know that a child comes with no virtue. They come without a resume. They come with very limited abilities very limited intellect, very little strength, and very little maturity. They can only come as they are, which is small and weak and powerless. And that's exactly Jesus' point, that we need to come in that way. If we read this passage with modern eyes, we risk being childish for being childlike. You know, I was on Facebook the other day, and I was given two memories about my children that made me laugh. The first one was of my son, Chapman. The text on this says, pretty sure this would never have happened if Melinda was home. Chap has packed himself into a bag and is crying because I won't zip him up. <laughs> the second one comes from my daughter. The text says, Piper screamed in her bed until I gave her Liam's underwear to hold. <laughs> I can't even think of a punchline, I'm so confused. <laughs> if we look at our children honestly, There is no convincing them of their bad ideas. You can tell them, you really don't want me to zip you into that bag. I will get arrested and you'll be taken away from me. I can tell Piper, you don't want to sleep with your brother's underwear. Trust me. There is no convincing of them of that. They are children and they can be very childish. But childishness is not childlikeness. And I think sometimes we come to God not childlike but childish. I mean, we come to God demanding that he give us the very things that are bad for us and will not help us. We demand promotions that will take us away from our families. We demand money that will take us out of dependence in him. We demand for all the sorts of pains in our heart to be healed. And so we actually never have to ever feel weak again and then don't go to him. You see, what we honestly want is self-sufficiency. And if we're honest, that is a sort of godlessness. We don't ever want to be in the place where we need God desperately, where I can be self-sufficient in myself. And God says, that is being childish, but it's not being childlike. 
A child can only bring certain things to God, and that is boundless enthusiasm, love, and wonder. And a child brings those things to God easily. I just want you to remember what it looked like when these children sang up here. I have to tell you, these children did not sing like that for you. They sang louder for each other all week long. And they were always singing for God. They brought the one thing that they had, boundless childlike wonder, love, and enthusiasm. And when we see that and hear this passage that we need to come to God like a child, we should think of this. I want you to think about your own singing compared to theirs. How often we worry about the person next to us hearing our bad voice or feeling awkward about kind of engaging in that sort of way. We see the kids flapping around their hands and ours are clenched behind our back. You see, what God's asking for us to do is stop earning, stop trying, stop efforting your way into my love and start coming to me with wonder and enthusiasm. Because in a sense, there is no work we can do to earn God's love in the first place. The thing that he truly wants is for us to come to him with hands and hearts wide open. And that's the lesson that you and I can learn from VBS this week. That up here we see the example of how we're to love God. And the call for us to love God. And it's so tangible. And it's not really that hard. What I think God wants from me is more effort, more work, and to burn myself out and to die with no energy left and fall into the kingdom and say, I gave you everything, God. We think that's what God wants from us. What he truly wants is hearts full of wonder and love. Look, it's been a week of that. With the web telescope, with our children, it has never been clear that God is worthy of our love and worthy of our wonder. And yet, we don't don't just get to observe it. We need to engage with it and begin to do it. What does God want from you this week? It is not more activity. And it is not more effort. And it is not more guilt. Instead, what he wants you to know is that you have all of his love already. Right now, as you are, as limited as you are, as broken as you are, regardless of what your Friday and Saturday night looked like, regardless of what the last year of your life has looked like, regardless of how you've burned your life to the ground and the failures you've made, God loves you right now with an abounding, overwhelming love. God wants you to know that. He wants you to respond to him in that. Let me pray. Lord, this is one of those messages that's so easy to preach, but God, it's so difficult to know. But Lord, in our hearts, Would you speak your love to them? Lord, would you bring it near to us? Would you show it to us? Would you help us to know it? And Lord, would the voice of the accuser be silent? Lord, would the voice of our own guilt and shame be silenced? And Lord, would you help us to come to you and accept that you love us and you died for us and accepting you is enough. It's enough. God, I pray for every Christian that's been in this room that has heard these sorts of messages so many times and just simply needs to have some of your spirit poured onto dry soil again. Lord, would you reinvigorate our hearts towards you and draw us into love. And Lord, I pray for the parent who came here today because their kids were singing on stage and church is not their thing, but this got their kids out of the house for a week and it was a good thing. Lord, would you help them to know that you love them and that we as a church want to love them. Lord, I pray, Lord, today that you'd help them to pray to you, maybe for the first time ever. 
wanted to talk to you about that and to bring you some of the pain and the hurts and to experience the love of you in that. Lord, would you do that? We pray that from you. And Lord, we pray that you'd bless both these churches as we go. Help us to be light and life to the South Bay, bringing the message of the gospel to them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.